Good morning, everybody. So glad you guys are here today to worship and to start the new year off in the right direction. And so it's good to see everybody. You know, 15 years ago, I started to teach at Cincinnati Christian University. I just taught one class. It was called Leadership and Management for Ministry. It was a master's class, and most of the students were people that were already out in ministry, that were working in the field, and they uh, were giving their time and serving to the Lord. And so I felt like this was my opportunity to kind of give back to them, that I could help raise up that next generation of leaders. And so one of the classes that I teach in that is called Navigating the Highs and Lows of Church Leadership. And one, on one side of the board, I'll put the positive. These are the blessings. These are the good things about working with people in the church and working for the Lord. And, and on the other side, these are the challenges with that. And, and so students will always write things out there, and they'll, they'll give me ideas, and we'll put them on the board, and we'll discuss them. And so a lot of times people will say things like this. You know, in ministry, there is this closeness to the Lord that you get to actually spend time with God. Not only that. That's part of your job. They want you to spend time with God. So getting away with the scripture and things like that and even worshiping, people want you to do that. The challenge side of that is that sometimes in ministry, you get confused about what is uh, your relationship with God and what is your work for God. Does that make sense to everybody? And if it doesn't, that's okay because it only makes sense sometimes when you're kind of working in ministry and you're kind of writing a sermon yet at the same time. You know, you're learning from that, and yet, is that your devotional time? And these kind of questions. And, you know, one of, the cha- one of the blessings is you get access to people's lives. I mean, real access. Like, people invite you into moments of great success, but also great challenge. And with that does come a challenge in ministry, because if you care about people, you carry with you the hardships that they face, the things that they are challenged by. And so you're walking with them through some of the most difficult of times, as well as some of the greatest times. And one of the challenges is you can walk from one great joyous moment with one person in a conversation or an accounting appointment or what have you, and then walk right into another moment of the most difficult and challenging time. And that's just part of what goes with it. On one side, there's a blessing of you get to communicate God's truth to people and open up the word of God to them. And on the other side, there is this challenge of the responsibility of that, right? Making sure that you rightly divide the word of truth. That when you teach, that you're teaching the the words of God, what he actually wants taught. Now, with ministry comes great flexibility. And so uh, if there's someone on our staff or whatever, they have an emergency or family crisis or, or, or they just need some time off, there's flexibility. But on the challenge side, it's a 24-7 kind of a deal. And, and sometimes we'll joke in our classes, a weekend? What's a weekend? You know, because, because really, you know, the old joke is if you're in ministry, you only work one day a week. It's not that hard, right? Isn't that what people say? You only work on Sunday. The challenge is that you work through the week to run the business of the church or pastoral care with people, and then the weekend comes, and that's kind of like kind of a big moment, obviously, and so you better have everything ready, and and, uh, and so all the details, all the planning, I'll have students come to me and say, Dr. Sam, that's the only place they call me doctor, by the way, but if you guys want to adopt it, it's cool, it's fine, but anyway, they go, hey, Dr. Sam, they say, um, I've got a paper. It's like 15 pages. You're asking us to do 15 pages. And in every class, there's always this student who goes, hey, can we cut it down to like 12? Would that be all right with you? Let's cut it down to 12. They're like the class spokesman. I'm like, no. I said, here's the deal. I said, until you do what we are doing, and those of you who teach on the weekend on a regular basis, 
I said, until you're writing a 10 to 12 page paper every single weekend of your life, just imagine that, gang, because that's really what what sermons are. You're researching, studying. It's got to be creative and compelling every every time, you know, and it's got to be biblically accurate. I say, you, you just do that, and you'll understand sort of the, flexi- the, the, the challenge of that. So while there's flexibility, there is this weekend challenge, which is why sometimes we have a rotation of, of teachers, and Josh will teach, and Andrew will teach, is because doing it every weekend, man, on the weekends where I'm not preaching, it's like, wow, I get to do projects around the house. It's crazy, really. Then there is this thing called the fishbowl that all leaders talk about, but leaders in church talk about, meaning that somehow, because we are in Christian leadership, that there is this eye on uh, us or our family. And um, I may have told you before, but I remember years ago at another church, and Hannah was like six or something like that, and it, it was class time. And, and on Friday, I get a phone call from her Sunday school teacher, and, and they basically say, I want you to know what Hannah did on Sunday. I was like, okay, tell me. She was like, well, we were handing out candy, and I gave all the children one piece of candy. But when I came back around, and I asked them to make sure I gave everybody one, Hannah said she didn't have one yet. She took two pieces of candy. And I was like, and uh, she said, so I don't think she's honest about that. I said, well, okay, a couple things. First of all, thank you for calling me. Um, If you're going to call me in the future, don't wait till Friday, because she has stolen many pieces of candy since Friday. All right, all right. So it's this Sunday, I mean, so don't do that. And secondly, can I just say, she's six, she's a kid, and it's just a piece of candy. So please chillax. You know, anyway, so thank you for your service to the Lord. Um, but diplomatic, you have to be diplomatic also. So one of the challenges is just a fishbowl. I think another challenge is that, and this happens with all leaders, doesn't it? That when there is a success, it's a success for the team. You're like, man, great job, team, way to go. Or more accurately, it's a success for the Lord because it's a blessing, right? You're like, hey, that's a blessing. God's awesome. But when there is a failure, you own that. You take it in personally. And you say, well, maybe we could have done something different, or how could we have done that differently or better? And, of course, one of the challenges of ministry and working with people at all is just what? It's just people, right? Some people will say one of the greatest things about ministry is what? The people. One of the greatest challenges about ministry is what? The people, right? Because you always have difficult people at times. And and, um, and and on one hand, like you have these amazing volunteers who they don't have to be begged or prodded or pleaded with. They just come and it's just a servant mindset. And they're like, look, don't just give me like a little thing. Give me like a piece of the pie and you won't even have to worry about it anymore. And it's going to be great. And then you know it's totally taken care of. And then on the other side, you have people that have to be begged and prodded and pleaded with. And will you please serve? And we get up in this situation like, oh, our kids are in the children's ministry. And uh, please, please, please serve. And then occasionally we'll have people that call and just go, oh, by the way, I can't work my rotation anymore. I know I signed up for a year, but for whatever reason, I'm out. And so somebody has to pick that up. I, I'll never understand this one. There, I, I do understand this. There are dear friendships in the church. And we've had so many, so many of you all. And yet at the same time, I never will understand dear friendships lost. That somehow people have equated their relationship with me or our family with whether or not they like our church. That somehow if they leave our church, that somehow they can't be in relationship with us. And I'll, I'll never understand that. But I, I want to say this. That one of the biggest challenges in church ministry and leadership is that people are always in process, right? And, it's, and, and 
and it's easy to see process in certain ways. Like if you're working with somebody regarding their fitness, it's easy. It's like, well, I, I lost 10 pounds or I gained this or I did this. But when it comes to spiritual and emotional and discipleship kind of things, it's very difficult to see progress, and especially if you're the individual, the people who are actually experiencing it. So we as church leaders have to be able to say, wow, good job. Way to go. You did it. You made it. You're doing great. Keep it up. It's very difficult. But it's also difficult because I have run into a lot of people over the years, while, while they will say they are in process, they aren't making progress. In other words, they'll go a year from now, they'll be in church, but they won't be changed. They'll come to church, but they're about the same as they were last year. And admittedly now, some people need more change than others. Can you say amen? Tell your spouse, you need more change than other people. No, I'm just kidding. Don't say that. Don't say that. But in 25 years, years of ministry, I have had people, the vast majority, who when they pray, please hear me, they are praying, God, I want you to change my circumstances rather than, God, I want you to change me. Here's what I'm saying. Oftentimes, in the local church, what happens is we pray to God. Our relationship with God is, God, will you change this relationship? God, will you change this outcome? God, will you change this circumstance? God, will you get me out of a hardship? Rather than, God, will you make me more humble? God, will you make me more kind? God, I need to forgive that individual. And so oftentimes our church relationship or our relationship with God is marked by what we think he can do for us rather than how he can change us. And that brings us to this letter of James. We're only going through one verse today of James. James chapter 1, verse 1. And Josh was teaching on this tonight at Project 215. He's like, really? You plan the series so that I only have one verse to teach on? I was like, yes, that's it. That's all you get. And here it is, all right? James, a bondservant of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now, in the Bible, there are several men named James. Apparently, it's a pretty common name, including two of the twelve disciples. But this James here is the half-brother of Jesus, because he had, this, he had the same mother as Jesus, but obviously a different father. And although he is mentioned by name only twice in the Gospels, he rose to prominence after the day of Pentecost. And uh, we now know, we know from the Scripture that Jesus' family, his brothers and sisters, didn't really believe that Jesus was the Messiah, which I've always thought was strange. If you grew up with Jesus, you would probably think he was a miracle worker, but it makes me wonder that maybe, you remember Jesus would deflect attention all those times in his early ministry? Remember when he, his mom said, you need to turn this water into wine, and he said, not now because my time has not yet come. I wonder if he met with, his, with Joseph and Mary early and said, hey, listen, gang, um, don't uh, don't be saying anything about, when well, no, he wouldn't say don't be saying. He would use proper English, right? No, he'd use proper Greek. I don't know what he would use. But he would go, he would say, listen, don't bring it up. I know I'm the Messiah. You know I'm the Messiah. There was a miraculous birth. Let's not make a big deal out of it. I don't know if he would say that or not. But I do know his brothers didn't believe in him. Mark chapter 3, Jesus very early in his ministry was doing miracles. Verse 20, it says, Then Jesus entered a house, again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. I, that's interesting. They're going to try to take charge of Jesus, for they said, He is out of his mind. Now let's be honest, it would be difficult to be Jesus' younger brother, right? I'm the youngest in my family. I have two older brothers. I have an older sister. Sherry is so talented at piano. 
I play at piano. Mark is an awesome woodworker. I'm sort of like, like competent. Jonathan is like, you know, Jonathan, right? I mean, come on. He like, he like graduated from law school at age 12. I don't know. It seems like that to me. He's first in his class at UC Business School. His ACT was ridiculous and off the chart. I stayed out all night the night, my ACT, but the night before and hung out with my buddies. Just blew it off completely. But I did get into college. My brother went to like a geometry competition. I liked algebra two so much I took it twice. I mean, this is the absolute case. And so when you grow up in those shadows, teachers are like, oh, you're Jonathan's brother. Awesome. You're going to be such a great student. And, and uh, they're like, wow, it's amazing. You, you're, you're not Jonathan's brother. I don't know what happened, but um, I just had many interests. Let's put it that way. I have many interests. Um, but anyway, and the longer I went in school, the better I got. So relax, all right, relax. Even though my kids do use it as an excuse. Oh, I get a C in something? Great. You failed algebra too. Well, whatever. Okay. Doesn't matter. Study. All right. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so here's what happens. So when, when James grew up with Jesus, just imagine that for a second. I mean, Jesus in school? Could you imagine the teacher? First semester? Wow, James, you're the brother of Jesus? He always got straight A's. He has like a photographic memory. It's amazing. By the end of the first semester, like, James, man, I think you're adopted. You are not his brother. What about at home? You ever did this if you're a parent? Hey, wow, can't you just be more like Jonathan? I mean, he's like, wow, can't you be more like Jesus? You know, the comparisons with Jesus. And so James grew up in that shadow. But let's give him some grace. It's clear that his family didn't believe him as the Messiah, but after the resurrection, he radically changed. We know Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says, Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. And by the day of Pentecost, James and the rest of his family were so convinced that Jesus was the Messiah that they were with the disciples in the upper room. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So by the time that Jesus had resurrected, they were now believers in Christ. And by the time the Jerusalem council happened in Acts 15, James was a well-respected leader in the Jerusalem church. Now, we don't know a lot about James from the scriptures, but we do know a lot about James from just ancient church history. And here are some historians and their Difficult to pronounce names and some of his history, all right? According to Eusebius, James was named the bishop of the Jerusalem church by the apostles. James, the brother of the Lord, to whom uh, the Episcopal, Episcopal seat in Jerusalem had been entrusted by the apostles. Jerome wrote the same. James, after our Lord's passion, ordained by the apostles, bishop of Jerusalem. And that James, James was ruled the church of Jerusalem for 30 years. Clement of Alexandria wrote in his sixth book of his apotoposis that he was called James the Just, which I think is interesting. Hega, 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 Hegapus in 100 AD to 180 AD wrote five books, most of which have been lost to history. But Eusebius wrote some of what uh, he had written in his, um, in his history. This is what he said about James. Listen, James, the Lord's brother, succeeds to the government of the church in conjunction with the apostles. He has been universally called the just from the days of the Lord down to the present time. For many bore the name of James, but this one was holy from his mother's womb. 
He drank no wine or intoxicating liquor, nor did he eat flesh. No razor came upon his head. He did not anoint himself with oil, nor make use of the bath. (laughs) So he didn't drink, but he did stink. Okay. He alone was permitted to enter the holy place, for he did not wear any woolen garment, but fine linen, linen only. He alone, I say, was worse to go. Was was he alone want, want to go into the temple? He used to be found kneeling on his knees, begging forgiveness for the people, so that the skin of his knees became that of like a camel's, by reason of his constantly bending the knee in adoration to God and begging forgiveness for the people. Tells you something about the heart of James and how he changed. How did James die? Clement of Alexandria relates, James was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and was beaten to death with a club. I did fine with that that first service, but Hegesippus cites that the scribes and the Pharisees placed James upon the pinnacle of the temple. He threw down the just man. They, They began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall. And one of them who was a fuller, took the club with which to beat out clothes and struck the man on the head. Talk about James. Talk about a change for an individual who did not believe in Christ as Messiah and now is going to the death, served 30 years as, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And the Bible in James chapter 1, verse 1, calls him a bondservant or a slave. And that that term is found 130 times in the New Testament. And when we think that, we always think in terms of American, kind of our view. But we need to think about it in terms of a New Testament view. That instead of being a slave to sin, we became a slave to Christ. Rather than being a servant of the flesh, we became a servant to Christ. It's found a lot of times, Ephesians 6, 6 says, Don't be men pleasers, but slaves to Christ, doing the will of God. Romans 1, Paul writes, Paul, the slave of Christ. In his excellent book, simply entitled Slave, John MacArthur outlines five parallels that we should take today from the life of bondservants in the New Testament. He said, first of all, it had immense exclusive ownership. Slaves were owned by their masters in a way that said that they are working for them, but Jesus said, you have been bought with a price, meaning we are not our own, meaning that Christ has purchased us, Christ has bought us with a price. And the Bible says then in 1 Corinthians 6, therefore glorify God with your body. Not only that, complete submission. If we belong to Christ and he is ruler over us, then his will be done, not ours. That's why Christ could pray to his father, father, not my will, but your will be done. And so that's our prayer. God, we don't know the future. We just pray your will be done in all things, whatever that is, because we have complete submission to you. Third, there is singular devotion. No, no, no bondservant concerned himself with obeying other masters. His concern was, how do I please the one that I serve? Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. The 19th century evangelist George Mueller writes it this way. He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, taste and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Not only that, but it means that we now have total dependence. Someone who is a bondservant meant that I am now totally dependent upon the one who leads me. 
And that's the way James is. He is dependent upon the Father. It doesn't mean we don't work. It doesn't mean we don't strive. It doesn't mean we don't, you know, seek to, to, to be diligent. It just simply means that as we live our lives, that we will trust God totally with the results of whatever it is we're going through. And as some of you guys are navigating through challenges, dependence on God means, God, I don't know how it's going to come out, but I know you do, and I know you care about me. So I'm going to trust you. And finally, the slave was personally accountable. 2 Corinthians said it this way, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. All of us are accountable before God on our own. But not only are you called bondservants, you're called children of God. A grand inheritance, dearly beloved, forgiven. So many words, but this word has so much rich meaning for us because as we are slaves to Christ, as MacArthur says, not only are we affirming our complete submission to him, it also is a declaration of the privileged position that we have as Christians by being associated with the Lord. No affiliation could ever be greater than that. And I want to use a word analogy for you here, and I'm not doing it just to be creative. We often talk about being chained and that we need to release the chains amazing grace the chains are gone and when we're saying that we're saying we are free in christ we are now releasing the chains of slavery to sin but i want to give you the ultimate or the opposite today and that is you can't be chained unless you are chained to christ you need you can make little mid-course corrections in your life. You can make little adaptations, but you cannot be transformed until you are connected to Christ. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, so connect with me. You can't be changed unless you are a bond servant of Christ, unless you are chained to him. And so I just want to ask you a question as we start this study. This study is not for your spouse, although it is. It is not for your kids, although it is. It is for you. This study is for you. This book was written primarily to Jewish believers who were dispersed in the first century, but it has a secondary application, and that is for you. So over the next four months, we're going to study the book of James verse by verse by verse. And can I say it again? This study is for you. So if it says, watch your tongue, that's not so that you go home and tell your spouse, you need to watch your tongue because pastor said it and it's in the Bible. You need to remember it's for you. And if it says forgive your brother, that's for you. And if it says faith without works is dead and that you have no faith without works, that is for you. And when it says you have to watch your mouth, when you have to seek wisdom, when you have to pray before the Lord, that is for you. Am I being clear today? Friends, this is for you, okay? And again, if we will be changed, you have to think, not in terms of somebody else, you have to think in terms of you. If you're going to be a bondservant to Christ, you have to accept this as a personal challenge to you. Now, James says the letter is written to the 12 tribes who have been dispersed. So it was written to Jewish Christians who had now been scattered because of persecution. So even those he wrote it to were people that were going through challenging and difficult times. So this message was written to real people who were going through real challenges, and now it's being written to us as well. And he's writing to these people who are going through these challenges and saying, listen, I want you to know 
God has a plan for your life. God loves you, and I'm going to give you some very practical things to think about. In chapter 1, we're going to talk about the trials that we face as Christians. And again, this is about you. We're going to talk about your perseverance in trials. We're going to talk about hearing the Word of God and doing the Word of God. We're going to talk about in chapter 2 the sin of partiality and favoritism and the sin of judgmentalism and the, and the ability that we need to have to show grace between one another and between our family. We're going to talk about the relationship between works and deeds. In chapter 3, we're going to talk about taming the tongue and wisdom that comes from God, not from our hearts. And in chapter 4, we're going to talk about a warning against worldliness and instead being godly people, a warning against boasting in tomorrow and being arrogant and instead being humble. And in chapter 5, we're going to see a warning against trusting in riches and comfort and instead finding our satisfaction in God and God alone. It's going to be a good four months, and it's a good four months for you. And I just want to ask you a question. How many of you believe that Jesus wants the best for you? Amen. Raise your hand. Jesus wants the best for you. Now, the best doesn't mean God's just going to bless you like crazy and your life. Man, I tell you, if, if you're not having all success all the time, then God's not for you. That's not true. That's not true. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates that. Tell that to James. You got tossed off a temple and, and then bludgeoned to death. That doesn't seem like the best, but it was because through that, God received glory and James returned, received eternal life. So what I'm saying is, the, the Bible, Jesus said, the devil wants to steal your life and kill it and destroy it. But he said, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so what I need you to get in your heart as we start this is that James is a letter that does two things. Number one, it introduces you to the glory of God. Because you can't change unless you're invited into the presence and the glory of God. And that is what God wants for you, the best. And the first way to do that, the more you are in his presence, the more you are able to be changed and transformed by him. He is not the enemy of life. He is the author of life. He is not a taker. He is a giver. And what he wants to do is to give to you those good things. And sometimes those challenges that raise you up. And the second thing that we're going to find in James is there's a lot of practical to-dos. And just like a parent who loves their children enough to say, here are some things you need to do and here are some things you don't want to do. You say it not out of hardship, not because you're trying to punish them, but because you love them. You tell your child, don't touch the hot stove. Please don't do it because you're going to avoid some pain in the process. And so as James lays out the scripture to you, he's doing this. We've often said the word of God is used to inspect you, meaning it's going to kind of go deep, and it's going to look at places in your life. And let me just challenge you, if it's not inspecting you, you need to go to God with a humble attitude and say, God, where am I missing here? And if you pray and God don't change my circumstance, change me. The second thing it does is it corrects us. As you read of the word of God, not only does it inspect you, it corrects you. There's some things where you, the Bible says it rebukes you. And there's some times where I need to be rebuked. Not only that, it perfects me. It makes me more like Christ. Through the fact that I'm reading his word, it perfects me. It corrects me. It inspects me. But it also directs me. The Bible says that the Word of God is like a lamp into my feet and a light into my path, meaning it gives me some direction in my life, and it kind of gives me those next steps. As I'm reading the Word of God, it's going to direct me. And, friends, it's going to protect you. It's going to help you stay out of some areas that you need to avoid. It needs to give you some guardrails as kind of some direction in your life to say, don't go there. If you do that, you're going to regret it. The Bible does that for us, and the book of James is going gonna, is gonna to do that for us. It's not to restrict you, to direct you, inspect you, correct you, perfect you, and ultimately protect you. And if you just get into the Word, that's what it's going to do. 
We're going to start this study together. Read the book of James. It takes about 15, 16 minutes to read the book of James. That's it. It's a letter. It, ta- it took him 15, 16 minutes to read it. It's going to take us four months to go through it. Amen? All right? We got a lot to do. If we're doing it verse by verse, we got a long way to go. And uh, I want to pray for you as we get started. God, we just thank you so much for your love for us, and thank you for the Word of God. Thank you, God, that through the Word of God, we're able to see your glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God, also, we get to see, as the Word of God, it does inspect us and direct us and correct us and perfect us and protect us. God, we see it as something that, it's not a restrictive deal, it's something that, well, you want the best for us, and so if we follow and know your word, it's going to change us. So God, like James, was a bondservant to Christ, who was changed by him, God, I pray that we as an individual and as people will be changed to Christ, so that we will be changed by him, so that this year we won't just be in process, we'll make progress. God, we look for that. We pray you for that. God, thank you for the ability to have joy in the journey. And thank you, God, when times are hard, that you give us encouragement to keep going and to stay faithful until the end. And we'll receive the crown of life. God, we ask this in Jesus' name.